Do take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. I think there are people who find or who think that looking for God, looking for life's answers, looking for meaning in life is a, an arduous task, the responsibility for which lies on our shoulders. A small boy one answered the te- once answered the telephone at home and in a quiet voice said, hello, and the person on the other side said, can I speak to your dad? No, said the small boy very softly. He's busy. Oh, could I speak to your mom then? No, said the small boy, whispering. She's busy. Well, well is, is, your, is your grandmother in at the moment? Could I speak to her? Uh, yes, said the little boy, very quietly. But she's busy too. Well, is there anyone else there that I could talk to? Yes, said the little boy, very quietly. The next door neighbor and the police are here. Oh, said the caller. Could I speak to one of them then? No, said the little boy. They're busy too. Everybody sounds very busy at the moment at your house. What are they all doing? They're looking for me, said the little boy. Well, God is not that hard to find. And uh, this is perhaps part, part of the message of these opening words of John's gospel. He starts off very obtuse at least from uh, an outsider's perspective. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have to pause for a moment, and we have to do some thinking. We have to use our minds, our rationality, our reason given to us by God, and we have to use the Scriptures that God has placed in our hands to understand what, what that language means. And we've tried to do that as we've been expounding that opening part. But once we get to the punchline, the punchline being that God has become flesh in Jesus Christ. God is among us. God is here. He's been, he's visited our planet. Ours is, as C.S. Lewis called it, the visited planet. We now come to what happened when God was here? What, what happened when God visited this planet? And John, or, or should I say the writer of this gospel, who is John, but we, we're not using his name because he doesn't use his name because he wants us only to have one John in our head. And it's not the John you're thinking of. He wants us to have one John in our head, and that's the John who's mentioned here, John the Baptist. So John the Apostle doesn't mention his name because he wants to put the focus on John the Baptist. The Apostle wrote this, however, in a quite specific way in order to establish and root the faith of Christian people in and ground it in reality, in the reality of the life of a particular human being. So, our passage today begins with these words, the next day. In other words, what John is recalling is uh, the third day in the first week of the public life of Jesus of Nazareth. The third day of the first week of the public life of Jesus of Nazareth. It was a day very, very long ago in a place 
very far away from Philadelphia today, but it was a real day in real space-time history. And however much people today want to ignore that fact or escape from that fact, when they write their date every day, they recognize the testimony to the historicity of this man, Yeshua, Jesus. That at one point of time, 2,000 years ago, this man, Jesus, lived, walked, breathed, spoke, did what he did here on planet Earth in a very real and tangible way. And one of the big themes of John's gospel, John the Apostle's gospel, is this idea of testimony. You can see that if you glance back to verse 19. This is the testimony of John, that is, John the Baptist. This is, this is the witness. Here, here, here is a kind of courtroom scene, more, or a scene where witnesses are being brought forth to give their testimony to what they have seen or experienced or whatever. And John is bearing his witness, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who, by the way, gets more airtime in the secular realm outside of Christianity than Jesus does in the same realm for his period. John the Baptist, who is very, very famous within Judaism. John the Baptist, who, is, who has lots written about him and said about him in uh, the Jewish histories of the time and even some of the Roman histories of the period. John the Baptist's great business is witnessing to the Messiah, that's his great role. And although the New Testament uses this language of witness, sometimes uh, at least we apply it to ourselves as Christian people, primarily in the New Testament, the word witness is used of those people who were the first eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And if you and I are witnesses, we're only second-hand witnesses. They were first-hand witnesses. They said and spoke what they had seen and what they had heard. And here in this little section that we're reading today, we find where the first of these eyewitnesses now become to be assembled by, by God. Now, let me, just, let me just say something broadly about how the church begins to spread outside of the New Testament. Tertullian, writing about the year 200 A.D., wrote this. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you. He's writing to the secular audience. Cities and islands and fortresses and towns and marketplaces, the very camp, the tribes, the companies, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left to you nothing but the temples of your gods. By the year 200, Christianity had grown so great. Gibbon, in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, wrote, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received. And Adolf Harnack, the great German historian, wrote, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries, speaking about what they knew. But here in this passage, we have the basis for what those informal missionaries said. We have the historical foundation of what the church today still goes out into the world to speak of. 
and it illustrates this principle. And it has two simple points. That here we have the final witness, the final prophetic witness to Jesus. And here we have the first apostolic witness to Jesus. I'll unpack those as we go along. First of all, here we have the final prophetic witness to Jesus. John the Baptist is the last prophet, if you like, or the penultimate prophet sent to Israel, Jesus being the final one. And in fact, in Jesus, God not only sends a prophet, but sends his son. And John's testimony was primarily aimed at the people of Israel and through the gospel writer to us today. And in this little section that we have read, on the third day of Jesus' public ministry, we find John talking to his own followers. His own followers hear what he has to say, they believe what he has to say, and they go and find Jesus for themselves. And you can see the link between what has gone before and what happens on this third day in the language, the action language that is described. Let me read this to you. In the previous section, we read these words. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then in today's section, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said to them, nudge, nudge, behold, the Lamb of God. John looked, John saw. He saw Jesus, he looked at Jesus, and he said, behold, look, turn your eyes, bring your focus to bear on Jesus. And John's testimony, it is being underlined here, do you notice? His testimony is based on face-to-face, person-to-person contact with the individual we know as Jesus of Nazareth. That's absolutely vital for us to grasp. You want to know when somebody tells you that they were there and they saw something, you want to know for sure that they saw what they said they saw or heard what they said they heard. And John is telling us here, or the the apostle is telling us about John the Baptist here, that his testimony was based on a personal, face-to-face interaction with the subject, with Jesus. The Gospel writer is expressing this connection then between John the Baptist, John's disciples, and Jesus himself. The first disciples of Jesus were, first of all, disciples of John, and they followed Jesus at John's direction. That means that the the apostolic tradition that we have in our New Testament, that tradition concerning Jesus Christ begins with the public ministry and the baptizing activity of John the Baptist. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is, these reports of the disciples following Jesus are not, in the first instance, models for disciples following Jesus today. What they do, rather, is they lay the foundation, the essential foundation, for you and I to follow Jesus today. They give us the evidence 
on which to build our faith. Later on in the, in the New Testament, we discover <clears throat> one of the qualifications for being an apostle <coughs> called by Jesus to his side is that those, the 12 disciples, the apostles who are the foundation of the holy city of the New Jerusalem, <coughs> had to be those, we're told, who were with Jesus from the beginning. They had to be with Jesus from the beginning. Well, this paragraph, what this section is telling us how, is how that came to be, that there were people with him from the very beginning. On week one, week one of his public ministry. And the third thing that this passage is telling us is that these men are the men who were there to see what John, has, John the Apostle has already claimed they saw back in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at Father's side, he has made him known. Now listen to what he says. Go back to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Question is raised. When did they see it? How did they see it? Now the answer is being given. This is how they saw it. These people, in other words, are not simply the first members of the church. They are the founders of the church. And in terms of the Bible storyline, they are transitional figures from John the forerunner to Jesus, to Jesus himself, and then to the rest of the church. And they teach us that John's priority mission was to point people to the Messiah. Now, this whole business of John pointing his followers to Jesus is quite unusual. In the ancient world, the disciples stuck to their own master or rabbi. They were fiercely loyal to their teacher or their mentor. And it's unusual to find someone so prominent and popular as John the Baptist was pointing his followers in the direction of someone else. But everything we've learned about John in the narrative so far fits in to the picture that's being painted here. John has constantly said that he is not the main act, he's only, he's only the, the warm-up act to the main act that is to come. Uh, when I was uh, at college studying, uh, I got to know a bunch of young guys who played heavy metal music and, and who were into the drug scene and so on. And They came along to a little Christian meeting that I started on the college campus and, uh, and I went along to, to hear them uh, in, in response. And, and this, this group of guys, they were the warm-up act for the Rolling Stones, which was a really big deal in those days. They regularly went around with the Rolling Stones, and they were the warm-up act for the Rolling Stones. That was, that was huge if you were into heavy metal in those days. I, of course, was above those things, spiritually speaking. But uh, John the Baptist's role was to be the warm-up act to the main act, which was Jesus. He said this regularly. In fact, he has already said in this chapter that he was not worthy to be even lower than a slave serving the Messiah. He constantly underlines the primacy of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. He is above me. He is ahead of me. He was before me. He is of a rank superior to me. He's constantly been underlining this, underscoring this. 
Not only that, but John has been the one who's told us what Jesus has come into the world to do. Jesus has come into the world to deal with the sin issue, with the sin of the world. He will carry away the sin of the world. And so what you have as you read this story is that John models this vital spiritual principle. He disclaims any prior right to the allegiance of his followers by pointing them deliberately and clearly to Jesus as the Messiah. He avoided doing what uh, some ministers do and some counselors do. They, they kind of cultivate people who are dependent on them and they, they kind of encourage that sense of dependency. Paul, John's example is to push people away from ourselves. We've done our job when people find their way to the Savior and become dependent on the Savior. On this third day, John's proclamation concerning Jesus is repeated. On this third day is the beginning of God's new day for the world. It begins his inauguration. In some ways, this is John's last word. He has brought salvation history to the boundaries of a new age, a boundary that he himself will not cross. All that's left for John the Baptist from this day is to decrease, quietly bowing out, quietly going into the shadows as Jesus comes more and more onto the center stage and takes preeminence there. On this day, these men are John's disciples. By next day, they are Jesus' disciples. What a cost! To this man. No wonder Jesus says about John the Baptist, nobody greater has ever been born of a woman. He is the greatest human being there has ever been, Jesus says. And what a commendation from the Master for any individual, the greatest human being that has ever been. He wakes up the next day, the fourth day, and they're all gone. They're following Jesus. That's very humbling for John. His following and his ministry are vanishing. Jesus is taking the center of the stage. Later on in chapter 3, he says this, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is mine and is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. I must decrease. The increase of Jesus is the goal of John's ministry. Now what's important to notice is what he sends them to Jesus for. For the second time, John's testimony is focused on a particular aspect of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come into the world to do. Do you notice that? Behold the Lamb of God. It's a shortened form because he's already given us the longer form and told us what the Lamb has come into the world to do. The Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. Now he says to the disciples, go to Jesus, the Lamb of God. What John is saying to these men is, He's the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he's come into the world to deal with the most fundamental problem of the human race. He's come to deal with the sin problem. Yes, he is a prophet greater than Moses. 
Yes, He is God incarnate, God with skin on. And it really is very good news that He has been face to face with God from all eternity and that He is the one through whom the whole universe was made. That's all great and that's all good and it's all true. But you need to go to Jesus, John is saying to these men, because He has come into the world as the Lamb of God. And we saw the connections last time. As the Lamb of God, He is the one who is to die just as the Lamb died instead of Isaac dying under the knife of Abraham by the decree of God. He is the Lamb, like the sacred, the Passover Lamb, who on that night when God was going to visit and judge the firstborn in every home in Egypt, Egyptian and Israelite alike, it was the Passover Lamb that died, that died so that the judgment might pass over those firstborn and they be spared. He is a lamb, like the lamb mentioned in Isaiah 53. He goes like a sheep to the slaughter. He is silent as a lamb. And he is wounded for our transgressions and he's bruised for our iniquity. And the judgment of God falls on him instead of falling on us. That's what they're to go to Jesus for. We know that in its fullness. They perhaps did not understand it in its fullness at that point. But John is witnessing to them and to us. You go to Jesus for what Jesus has come to do for you. Because you need Him. You need Him to deal with the judgment of the Lamb. You need Him to deal with the full force of the wrath of God against sin. You need Him to deal with that decree of death which God has spoken from heaven against all sinners. Those that sin should die. The connection between verse 36 and verse 37 means that the reason that John the Baptist's disciples left John and followed Jesus is because John told them Jesus is the sin remover. Behold the Lamb of God, verse 36 says. Verse 37, the disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John Piper put it like this, we follow him, not the way David's mighty men followed him to serve him and protect him as their revered leader. No, we follow him the way sheep follow the shepherd, because we need to be protected. We need to have our sins forgiven. We are weak. He is strong. We are foolish. He is wise. We are hungry. He is bread. We are thirsty. He is living water. We go to Jesus. And, of course, often today, the message that I have just articulated is fudged or softened and made more user-friendly. Jesus gives joy. Jesus gives meaning. Jesus gives life. Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives blessings. All of which are perfectly true, of course. Absolutely true. But it's imperative to know on what basis Jesus can give me meaning and joy and life and hope and blessing. All of those promises are empty promises unless the fundamental problem of human existence is dealt with. Unless my broken relationship with God is dealt with. Unless somehow I can be rescued from out, from under the curse of God. 
that I can be delivered from the wrath of, of a rejected Creator unless I can be saved from the reality of eternal punishment. Unless that's all dealt with, you see. There can be no real joy, meaning, life, hope, and blessing. Sometimes this doctrine, of course, is called penal substitution. Penal being penalty, a judgment, a matter of law, condemnation. Substitution meaning somebody taking it in your place. That's a kind of vital aspect of the Christian faith. When I was a 17-year-old and I went up before our denominational office and was questioned by about 60 people who were questioning me and what I believed and what I had written in my personal statement, I remember being mocked by the principal of our college there in Scotland who, who was mocking me because I'd put these words down there, penal substitution. First of all, he said I didn't know what they meant. He was wrong. And secondly, he said they were nonsense. I had to defend it as a 17-year-old, and I'm still defending it at a 27, as a 27-year-old. <laughs> we all understand penalties. We all understand that actions have consequences, that violations of the law bring judgment on our head, that offenses increase in severity depending on the status of the one we have offended. If I'm sitting in my car at a red light, and inadvertently accelerate into a car coming the other way, and go right into the side of him, the, the law will take its course. But if I accelerate and I hit that car right in midships, and the President of the United States is in that car, you will never see me again. I will be somewhere in a hole in the ground, somewhere being you know, uh, interrogated and waterboarded and whatever else they have to do to find out whether I have any terrorists. And I mean, coming from Scotland as well, I mean, we, 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 we chased off the Romans. Who knows what can come out of Scotland, I'm going to say. So, so this, the severity of the offense is related to the significance of the one who is offended. And what sin is, is an act of treason against the supreme God of the universe. It is infinite in its repercussions and manifestations. The penalty for such an offense is cosmic and infinite. That's why John is saying to these people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It needs dealt with, and only He can deal with it. Only He can deal with it. And so John the Baptist is talking to these men and he's putting in their minds what will eventually become clearer to them. What he's talking about when he points to Jesus is the sin-bearing, wrath-enduring, curse-carrying, death-defeating, Satan-conquering Lord who deals with the sin problem. So there's the final prophetic witness to Jesus. And then secondly, here's the first apostolic witness to Jesus. For the last word on the third day becomes the first word of a new era to those disciples who heard it. Up to this point, the human witness to Jesus has been John. But now there's a shift. It's going to move to the apostolic witness. The two disciples we read heard him say this and they followed Jesus. They heard it, they believed it, 
They followed. My daughter calls me up and says, Dad, there's a sale on, G, in, on J. Crew this week. You better get in early. I have made a decision to make. Do I believe her or not? I know she'll only tell me that there's a sale on J. Crew if it really is a sale. I know that because I know she's as mean as anything. She's Scottish. And uh, it has to be a good sale or else there's no point going. So I believe her and I act accordingly. John has said something. They believe him. They heard it. They believed it. And they act upon it. They heard his repeated testimony to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so the two who heard John, later on in verse 40, the two who heard John followed Jesus, it says. They heard and they followed. They heard. They realized that day he was addressing them personally. And they followed Jesus. Now, for us today... Following Jesus is an expression full of significance, and we could unpack it and we could you know, explicate it forevermore, and, and you don't have the time and I don't have the energy. But following Jesus for them that day, you have to understand, was very much simpler, more straightforward. They literally, simply followed Jesus. I mean, they followed a man down the street. That's what they did. It was as simple as that. There was, let me say this, there was nothing religious about what they did that day. There was nothing spiritual about what they did that day. It was a very normal, natural thing. You see, what John is showing us here is an explication of what he's meant earlier when he said, the Word became flesh. What they encountered was a real, live, human being. And they followed him. And it gets even more dramatic. They go with a question. Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? This interaction with Jesus. Where are you staying? Why did they ask him that? I have no idea why they asked him that, but they did. And we even have Jesus' response. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I want you to notice the eyewitnesses' fingerprints are all over this. Did you notice? Did you notice that the author who wrote this uses Palestinian Jewish language? He uses Palestinian Jewish language when he calls... uh, the teacher, rabbi, and then explains what he means in Greek. When uh, he uses the word Messiah, and then explains what he means in Greek. When he calls Peter by his familiar family name, Kephas, and then explains what it is in Greek. This is a Palestinian Jew who's writing this, reflecting his own background. You notice the eyewitness indications. It was about the tenth hour. The significance of Jesus' invitation to them is so, so powerful for us. Come and see, he said. And we're told, they came and saw. What is Jesus doing? He's inviting them to see with their own eyes. Come see. Come and look. See where I'm going. Come with me. Be in my company. And they came. They came where? They came to where he was dwelling. 
And they dwelt with him that day, we're told. They dwelt with him that day. That's, that's the word that's used. It's exactly the same word that's used earlier in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word. They came and they dwelt with him. It was a specific day at a specific hour. Herman Ritterboss puts it like this. Not only did they see that he lived among them and where he lived among them, but at his invitation they also stayed with him that day and spent time with him as a human among humans. This was real history. They came and saw he was real. And it's interesting how these two disciples are introduced. One of them, we discover his name is Andrew. We're told that later on. And Andrew was Simon Peter's brother, we're told. The other one is unnamed. And that's led the church to wonder why he's unnamed. And the church has almost universally, from the beginning, supposed that this unnamed disciple was, in fact, the author of this gospel, John the Apostle. John is meticulous in avoiding mentioning his own name throughout this. Probably for a number of reasons. One is because he was very close to Jesus and didn't want to puff himself. But also because John is absolutely deliberate in giving the stage to John the Baptist. He wants John to be the only John you know about by name in his gospel. John is so crucial. His testimony is so vital. The apostle leaves John the Baptist, the only John mentioned in the story. Andrew was one of these disciples, and he goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter. The author assumes that Peter is well known. He is a leading figure in the church. But he doesn't find the Messiah by himself. He finds it through his brother who comes to him. They must have had discussions about what the Messiah would be like and who the Messiah might be. But here is Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon Peter and says to him, We found him. We found the Messiah. And again, notice the Semitic term, Messiah. Simon lets himself be brought by his brother to Jesus. So all through this, there are the fingerprints of eyewitnesses. These things happened. The players are now being pulled together through the testimony of John and now through the meeting with Jesus himself. They have met him. They are in his company. Jesus is already showing that his knowledge of, uh, of who these people are when they brought the man to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon. I've been waiting for you, Simon. I knew you were coming. You're Simon, and you shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. Your name will denote your role, the rock man in the church of Jesus Christ. So what we have here is the foundation, you see. The foundation of our faith is not so much spiritual and religious as factual, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, day-to-day experience of somebody telling someone else, look, 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. Follow him. Going after him. Our knowledge of who Jesus is is based on their first-hand personal testimony. And it was, it was not... They weren't in a trance or having hallucinations or having a religious high or being moved by some great revivalistic kind of fervor. It was normal, ordinary, day-to-day stuff. We're asked to believe in Jesus on the basis of their testimony and then on the basis of their testimony to go and witness to others and to draw the attention of others to this word of these men. And if you're struggling with Christianity, can I say that what your challenge is is to look at the lives of these men and to ask yourself, would men say this kind of thing? Here are ordinary people. You even read the Gospel of John and ask yourself, Isn't it amazing that a man with an ordinary job in the first century could write this kind of material? It's incredible. God encountered these people. He transformed these people. And our confidence in Christ is based on their credible testimony. God says through John to us, I'm telling you all this so that your faith might be built up, made stronger. I want you to to feel strength in what you believe. My prayer for you is that today you would throw yourself, you would cast yourself upon this this Savior Jesus. You would see him to be what Scripture maintains that he is. You would see this for yourself, that you would go to him, that you would receive him, that you would rest on him, that you would trust him, that you would embrace him for yourself and follow him. Because he never lets you down. And he never leaves you or forsakes you. And every day he is new and precious and wonderful. Believe it. That's my witness to their witness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made your Son known to us. And especially... You have made known to us what he came into the world to do, to deal with a sin problem. We've all fallen short of your glory. We're all imperfect, fallen creatures, and we need your pardon. We thank you that that pardon is possible because sin has been dealt with in a just way because you are a just God. And in the death of your Son, Jesus, You yourself have taken action to deal justly with unjust people and to justify us and make us right with you. We thank you for this. In your son's strong name we pray. Amen.